This is your coffee break. Hi friends, I am back again this week and I have with me on today's show my good friend Dean Barker who has just written a book and it is in the process of being published. It's called Web Content Management and we have a really delightful conversation for you today about being friend-zoned by your dream, dealing with writer's block, creating parking lots for ideas, giving yourself permission to fail, and just so much more. This is just a really fun and rich conversation, and I really hope you enjoy it. There you go. Oh my gosh, that would be the worst thing ever, but also the best thing. (laughs) Dean, welcome to the Right Now Podcast. I kind of want to ask you just a little bit about your book, if you don't mind talking about it for a second. Oh, so uh, my book, I, I've spent my career working in, in a field called content management, where if you work in digital content at all, you'd be familiar with. It's kind of the software that powers your website and manages all the stuff on your website. And I'm very passionate about it. I've loved it uh, for years and years and years. It's all I've really done. And about two years ago, we run a conference in Sioux Falls every April, and I was sitting around a table with a bunch of conference speakers. And I was talking about how, you know, it would be meaning to write a book. I had a lot of things I thought I wanted to say, and I would write a book, and I kind of didn't know how. And I'd put together a book proposal a few years back and shopped it around to a couple of publishers I knew, and nobody was really that interested. And they mentioned O'Reilly, um, O'Reilly Media. Now, if you work in the digital space, you might be familiar with O'Reilly. They published a series called The Animal Books, where all of their books have, like, a hand-drawn animal cover. They all have a color theme, like the web books are teal, and, like, the network administration books are purple. And there's all, like, color-coded animal type thing. And they had these kind of historic animal drawings on the front. And, I mean, they're, they're, they would be the largest technical book publisher, I would think. And so it was just, I thought that was crazy. There's no way O'Reilly's going to ever publish my book. And then after that, I, I went to their website one night. I was traveling. I want to say I was on the road somewhere. I was in a hotel. And I went to their website. And I went to their online submission form. And I filled it out. And I said, this is kind of where I think it would fit. And um, about two weeks later, I got an email from them. And they sent me back, they sent me a whole bunch of forms, and they said, can you fill this stuff out and send it back, and then send us a writing sample. And I did have a writing sample, I actually had about a 40-page document I had used to explain relational databases to, to one of our employees. I had put together that as kind of a quasi-ebook. And so I sent that back to them, and I filled out their documentation. I think they had done a little research on me or something, because there were a lot of fields they didn't they didn't want me to fill out, like why I felt I was qualified. Apparently, they had resolved that to their satisfaction. Nice. Well, it was kind of nice. And then so I sent that back, and I didn't hear anything for about three weeks. And then I got an email, and she said, you know, we've met. We'd like to go ahead with the book. And I wrote her back. Her name was Allie. Uh, she's my editor. Her name's Allie McDonald. She's out of uh, Boston. And I wrote her back, and I said, okay, when you say publish the book, do you mean you'll vaguely see what I put together and then think about it? Or, like, you legit want to publish this book? And she wrote back and said, no, we if you write the way you wrote in your writing sample and you do something with your outline, uh, we'll go ahead and publish this book. And I just couldn't believe it. It was amazing. Like, this was O'Reilly. This was the biggest technical book published. I've been reading their books for 20 years. Yeah. And they agreed to publish this book, which I had already dreamed of writing. And um, they sent me a contract, which I thought was hysterical. So they sent me this contract. And I'm like, oh, you guys are going to pay me, too. <laughs> well, that's just the neatest thing ever. Wow. And I get money for it. And they sent me a contract, which, honestly, I didn't give one rip about. The option in the contract is you get an advance and then less royalties mm. or no advance and then more royalties. And I was like, again, I, I don't really care. 
Um, so I sent, I didn't take an advance and I sent the contract back. Uh, like it was ridiculous as I signed it digitally and I kind of wanted to remember this moment. So I printed it out and then I put it on my desk and I signed it and I took a picture of it and then I shredded it. That <laughs> so, is awesome. So I have a picture of my signature on the thing. And, and then I realized that what I had was I had a signature on a piece of paper and, um, a bunch of self loathing. And that was about all I had to go on. And so then I had to write a book and that was the summer of 2014. And I started writing that summer. And it's been uh, 20 months, 20 months. So coming up on two years. And and you can write a book fast in this. What's important, this is a big book. It mm-hmm. topped out at 350 pages. And it's a long 350 pages. When you look at a, at a technical book, there's a lot of technical books that are like, you know, lots of illustrations and tons and tons of code samples. Like I'm reading one right now that I'm just flying through because there's like long stretches of code samples, which I... I'm not going to sit down and type in. And so I kind of like, and I kind of trust that it does what the author says it's going to do. So you don't like dissect them all. Uh, But this is long. This is like wall-to-wall text. I want to say there's 20 or 30 images in it, but it's just wall-to-wall text for 350 pages. And so I'm not saying it takes 20 months to write a book. It took 20 months to write this book. book, Additionally, one of the problems you have in this, every writer has this problem, is finding the time to write amidst everything else. And it's both finding the time to write from a pure ske- schedule standpoint, you know, when do I have free time to write? But then you also kind of have to have that coincided time when you're mentally able to write. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When I started working with my business partner, Carla, she was our designer 11 years ago when we started the company. And um, I remember she had to deliver a design that night or something. And she said something to me, which I've never forgotten. She goes, well, I hope I'm feeling creative tonight. And it, it occurred to me for the first time that you are creative sometimes and not creative other times. And if you have to be creative in the clutch... Like, you have to get creative forcibly. And mm-hmm. that's probably very hard to do. And so there would be times where, you know, I might have had an afternoon to spare, but I just was not mentally in the place where I could really write. And then, of course, you know, there was a big kind of psychological block, which I've talked to you about previously, of kind of writing this, this doing this momentous project that you had already dreamed about. Mm-hmm. And, and I call it getting friend-zoned by your dream. I had a star by that in the notes that I kind of had prepared here because I wanted to ask you about that. So that's been a really important thing that I've learned. And I'll explain what I mean by this. And I, first of all, I want to apologize for the word friend zone because I know for some people there's a lot of gender dynamics there. And I don't, I don't mean anything offensive by that. But, they, but I was back in high school, right? I was perpetually in the friend zone. I was kind of a geeky kid. And um, I would be friends with these pretty girls. I worked at a fast food restaurant. They would work there too. And they were like pretty girls. But I was just the friend, right? I was in the friend zone. Mm -hmm. And I very much wanted to be more than a friend, but I was in the friend zone. And uh, everyone would say, oh, wow, you should ask her out. And I was like, no, I'm not going to ask her out. And the reason why I wasn't going to ask her out is because I was very much addicted to the idea of being more than a friend, right? Mm -hmm. I very much addicted to kind of the fantasy and the idea of, oh, maybe I could date this girl one day. I didn't want to be confronted with the reality because if I never asked a girl out, I never had to get rejected. Yeah. Right? So it was much, much more comfortable for me to kind of hang out in the friend zone. And I think that's what happened with me for years about writing a book. I was very much addicted to the fantasy of writing a book. I wasn't willing to risk the reality of writing a book because the fact is once you start writing a book, maybe it just doesn't work out like you think it would. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly you have to come face to face with the fantasy was never real and it's never going to happen the way it was. And it's just much safer to kind of revert and kind of live in that fantasy of having written this amazing book and and not having actually. Because the fact is, life is messy. Life is messy and imperfect and it doesn't always work out the way you want it to. 
And so um, I, I had been friend zoned by my book for a long time. And, and I kind of broke out of that and I started writing it. And I'm happy to tell you that 20 months later, I wrote the book that I always dreamed of writing. I mean, it is, it is every bit the book that I hoped it would be. But getting over that hump and actually starting writing and risking that the reality of the fantasy won't be everything you hoped it would be, that's painful. That is psychologically and emotionally painful. And you got to break through that. How did you get over that hump? Somebody said they would publish my book. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I'm 44 years old right now, so maybe I'm just getting older and I, I care less now. And, and I just think there was kind of an inertia where I just kind of had to do it. And I think being on the other side of it now and looking back at it and kind of being able to put this in context, like this idea of being friend zone, I'm absolutely ready to do it again. It's not nearly as scary now. And so um, hopefully by, by telling this story... I hope there, that this resonates out there with some people and they think, oh, wow, that's me. And, and if I had to give advice to, to any writers out there that are just kind of afraid of taking a shot at this, it's that, you know, maybe the fantasy won't work out. Maybe it won't be everything you dreamed it would be, but it'll be something. And do you want to spend the rest of your life pretending? I love that. You had said something a little bit earlier about finding the time and being not only prepared, like maybe physically or or having a a space or a time in which to write, but also being prepared mentally to be creative. When you were working on your book, were were there times that you had to sit down and like force the words to come out? Or did you kind of have the leeway to say, I'm not feeling creative today. I'll work on this tomorrow. All right, so you've opened up a door where I could probably get myself in trouble, but I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you how this worked too. Okay. Um, Carrie, uh, my uh, assistant, who actually did the first copy edit on all of the chapters, she said something to me that was fascinating. One, she would always joke with me. She said, "You're supposed to write drunk and edit sober," and I was like, nah, "Okay," and I never really understood that until I kind of got writer's block halfway through a chapter, and like literally, I, I like two weeks, I was stuck halfway through this chapter. I didn't know where to take it. I didn't know what to do with it. And then one afternoon, I kind of like resigned the whole afternoon. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to write this chapter. And I sat down. And we have some beer in the fridge at work. And um, my favorite beer in the world, I'm a beer connoisseur, <laughs> meaning all I ever drink is Coors Light. And <laughs> we had some Coors Light in the fridge. And I sat down and drank Coors Light. And I was kind of wrestling this chapter. And I drank another Coors Light. And the more beers I drank, the easier it was to write. <laughs> and what I kind of realized is that um, I'm not saying that alcohol is the key to writing a good book. But what I am saying is that we self-censor ourselves. What I am saying is that when you sit down and you find it hard to write, it's probably hard to write because you're making it hard to write because you're half terrified of writing. Again, maybe you've been kind of friend-zoned by this project and you're afraid of putting the words down. And after I'd had about three course light, because I'm a, I'm, I'm a lightweight, and three of them and my wife is driving me home. <laughs> after I'd had like three course lights, I just, I just didn't care. I just started writing stuff. <laughs> and I kind of plowed through the chapter and then the chapter got done. And... What I learned, and this was another kind of very mechanical piece of of writing a book, is that your first draft really does not matter. (laughs) If I knew then what I know now in terms of how much editing you're going to do, I would have cared so little about my... I labored over this first draft. It does not matter. The amount of editing that you will do, it does not matter. So if you're staring at a blank piece of paper and you kind of can't get over the hump and actually get the writing done, Maybe have a few beers, but then also remember that what you were putting on paper on that moment almost does not matter because you are going to roll over that so many, so many times and your mind is going to kind of put together new connections and and you're going to realize that 
yes, this section was really weak, but now that I've written this other section further down, kind of I know where the direction to go to this. And the fact is a passage of writing, whether it be an essay or a chapter or a book, sometimes only makes sense from 50,000 feet. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it only makes sense. It's like if you're walking around a city, like I was in Washington, D.C. about three weeks ago, and it's kind of a confusing city to get around in, but I thought, you know what, if I could get really, really high in the air and look down on where I was, then it would all make sense. And so you pull up Google Maps and you get the overhead view and you're like, oh, goodness sakes, I know exactly where I am right now. I'm right there and there's this stuff here and it all makes sense from, you know, way high in the air. The same is true of, of writing. That chapter might not make sense when you're in the weeds, but after you get the end and you can look back on it and you can kind of step up at a higher level and look at the entire chapter from start to finish, then suddenly it'll start to make sense and you'll go back and you'll fix the stuff that was terrible the first time and there will be terrible things in there. So we, we censor ourselves. And if we go back to my concept of being friend-zoned by the book, you're really censoring yourself on a large scale by not even starting the project. And then when you get into the project, you kind of get into that middle phase where you're blocked. You're censoring yourself on a small level because mm -hmm. you're scared to death. You need to give yourself permission to suck. You need to give yourself permission to fail. And you need to sit down and say, I'm going to write something for the next 30 minutes. And it may be complete crap. But that's okay because I can go back to fix it. And at least I did it. Yes. So I, I don't know if that's the secret to writing, but it worked for me. Beers and failure. Mm -hmm. I love it. Pearson failure. Boy, <laughs> you take that out of context and you'll get in trouble. Uh, and any of that, if you want any of this like edited out later, just let me know. But okay, no, let's, I think this has been great so far. I, I want to leave that comment about, do you want this edited out? I want to make sure that stays in. Okay, that will stay in along with, maybe with all the stuff about cats at the beginning as well. Going through editing, you, you kind of talk about writing as sort of this almost initial planning step, like the initial writing was just kind of getting down this first draft. And then it sounds like the bulk of what you worked on was this long and maybe seemingly endless stretch of editing. Yeah, the editing, if you look in the actual hours, you know, writing it took like 20 months. And I've, I've been hardcore editing for about two. But the amount of work I've put into that two months probably equaled the 20 months prior because it's so kind of concentrated. And it becomes so real at that point, right? Mm -hmm. The manuscript's done. This is an actual thing. It's not theoretical anymore. And so you go through. And what I did to edit this is I killed trees. What I actually did is I went and got a binder. I went and got a bunch of dividers. And I went and got a bunch of three-hole punch paper. And I printed the whole thing out. It was about 150 pages front and back. Because it was 300 pages, and one thing you learn during editing is the book grows, grows, and grows, oh. and grows, and grows, and grows. Um, oh, yeah. I've added in the edit from when the manuscript was finished to when the book was done, I tacked on another 20% easily. Did you really? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So I actually printed the whole thing out, and I, I took a red pen, and I sat down and just went through it and started marking it up. The first time I went through it, there were just so many changes and so many problems. It took me probably five full days to get through it. And then it took me three full days to get all of those edits applied because you do those on paper and then you sit down on a computer and you have to mm -hmm. type them all in. And you realize that not all edits are created equally, right? You look forward to misspellings because those are super easy, right? <laughs> Misspelling. Oh, sakes, boy, I spelled this Super wrong. easy. And then, like, you know, maybe you need to reorganize a, fen uh, a sentence. And so these are, like, small edits. But edits get progressively larger. Like, there were a couple places where I just highlighted a paragraph and wrote WTF. Like, <laughs> what was I talking about there? What, this doesn't even make any sense. And then the worst, the worst, most grandiose editing problem I found was in two chapters in the end, like, I think chapter 13 and chapter 15, I basically repeated an entire section. Like, I wrote the same thing because it had been so long between writing those two chapters. Mm -hmm. And then you have to look at this. And one of the problems is when you find out in two different places in a book you're saying the same thing, you have to decide where does it go? Where is the best way to explain this thing? Now, I put it in these two places for a reason. So it's applicable in some sense to both places. But 
I, it needs to like live in one place and then do I have a callback in the other place or does it live in the second place and in the first place I say we'll talk about this later. And sometimes you have these big kind of wrestling matches on this is a great thing, this is a great passage, but I don't know where to put it. And so you end up trying to rearrange it and that got to be a big deal. So anyway, I got through that first edit. And then I printed the thing out and started in again. The mm -hmm. second one took me kind of three days to get through it. And by the time I got to the last time, I'd run through it about six times. It was taking me just a day. I could get through it in a Saturday and apply all the edits in a Sunday. You get stuck deep in the weeds. And I, I very much believe that the mind works in two modes. I, I believe that the mind works in a very, very focused mode that like when you're editing and you're thinking about something. But then there's kind of a more relaxed subconscious mode. And what you will find is when you get kind of deep in the weeds in your book and you're working, 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 then you close the book and you go to sleep, you wake up with a bunch of ideas. And like the next day you're in the shower and you're like, oh, holy cow, I, I should add this. And, I, and it goes on and on and on. This morning, okay, literally I sent my editor an email on Friday and said the book's done. Because here's another thing you find out from writing a book. One of the hardest things is being done. It's saying, oh. I'm done. <laughs> yes. I, I, the book is now finished. And like, I just wouldn't leave the thing alone. And my wife would start to get worried about me because I'd be sitting at the counter with this thing all printed out. And I sent a note to my editor on Friday. We had agreed that Friday was it because I kind of told her, I said, Allie, I've got to be done with this. Mm -hmm. I'm going a little mental. I got to be done. So on Friday, about 3.30 in the afternoon, I sent her an email and said, the book's done. And she responded in the cruelest way, the cruelest way a human being could respond. She said, no one's going to look at it until Monday, so you can have the weekend if you want. <gasps> no! It's like, oh, thank you. There goes my weekend. And so sure <laughs> enough, I did another edit over the weekend. And, you know, I woke up 2 a.m. Sunday morning. I, I'm a very, very early riser, not normally 2 a.m. I was about to say that. I, between 3 and 4, pretty <laughs> normal. But 2 a.m., I woke up and I thought, you know, it can't hurt to go look at it one more time. Six hours later, my wife comes out, and I'm, like, head down on the counter. And I have been – I've made hundreds of changes this morning – I was making changes. I came up with two really, really great anecdotes this morning that I put in the book. And then finally, I got scolded by the production team at noon. They said, look, get out. You have to be done. Because what happens is the book has to, the book is done, the manuscript's finished, but it has to go to production. Mm -hmm. and a whole lot of things happen here. It gets copy edited by them. I think they do a legal review. They do kind of a final publication review. They put together a production team that goes through the book and actually gets it out the door. About three weeks from now, it will be published. Quote, I'm air quoting. You can't see air, me, yes, but I'm air, air quoting. Quotes. Published. And then it'll be available as an ebook right then. And then about three weeks later, boxes will start arriving at bookstores with, with my book in it. And hopefully a box will arrive in my office with my book. That will be a great moment. Oh, my gosh. But um, they basically told me, they said, you know, you have to be done. You're finished. We really have to get to work on this thing. And there's still a couple things left undone. I, they have a staff illustrator. She has some illustration requests she's kind of working through. And then, of course, their copy editor is going to run through it. They have told me all along, don't edit too hard because we'll make sure it like looks really good. But my edits, I, I don't think were about grammar uh -huh. or punctuation. My edits were really about kind of conceptual flow, the, the thing that they hired me to write the book about. Yes. And so they're, they're probably going to come back with all sorts of questions. And they review it for things like gender issues and anything that might be inadvertently offensive, things like that. Um, make sure I'm culturally appropriate. So, yeah, that uh, knowing when to be done and finished has been the hardest thing in the world. Oh, my so. gosh. I bet. And you strike me perhaps as maybe a little bit of a perfectionist. You know, I, I don't know. I, I don't think I'm a perfectionist. I'm more obsessive than anything. Interesting. This is kind of a labor of love. The thing is, you could edit a book forever. You legitimately, when you're looking about a large, complex book like this was, I mean, this was a long book, and it was a very dense book, and it's fairly complex, 
you could edit this forever. I could spend, I've been in this business for 20 years. I got 20 years of stories. I got 20 years of metaphors, analogies. I could, I could edit this thing forever. In fact, I already know, I had a whole nother chapter that I was going to do, but it was almost a little too ambitious. And, and I actually decided, I made the conscious decision not to put that in the book. So, you know, this book's 350 pages. The expanded edition will be 500. Oh, my gosh. That's probably going to come in a year, 18 months from now. That'll be 500 pages. That's kind of awesome. I, I have a plan for that, which, which is a little too ambitious for this version of the book. But that's the other thing you have to do when you're writing. Now, I guess it's different with a nonfiction book. If you're writing fiction or something, it may be different. But I always just kept telling myself there'll always be a second edition. Yeah. Because with this type of book... I mean, it's assuming it's successful, there will be a second edition. I mean, this type of book is very much like a textbook in the sense you do editions and editions mm -hmm. year after year. And so that's what I kept telling myself. You know, there'll always be a second book. There'll always be a second edition. You know, this won't be the one and only book I ever write. And so when I would get obsessive about something, I would just tell myself, well, I'll just do that next time around. Phase two. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I think that's really interesting. And this is one of my like theories about where even fiction is going. You know, as we read more and more ebooks, and as those become more and more updatable, editable, I can see something like that happening for fiction as well. Well, you know, all of the kind of young adult fiction probably started out as one, and then if they're successful, they end up as a second and a third. And I think, I, I think, here's the one thing I've learned about nutrition. And it applies to this. Too. Okay. One thing I've learned about nutrition is like when you're at a restaurant and you're at risk of overeating, I always tell myself this, this is not the last meal I have, mm. right? This is lunch. I'm going to have dinner. So maybe relax and eat some more at dinner. Same thing about writing. Give yourself a break and give yourself permission to suck because this won't be the last thing you ever write. Unless you are 110 years old, you're reasonably <laughs> sure you're going to write something else. And, you know, it may be not the only, last thing you write in this genre. And so... I think people get very obsessive about their writing and they think, oh, this has to be absolutely perfect. And and does it? I mean, let's strive to do a great job, but give yourself a break. You're going to write something else later and maybe you'll get to do what you want to do with that one. So I, this all goes back to a big theme. And the big theme here is that as writers, I think we're very, very hard on ourselves. Yeah. And we need to loosen up ourselves, give ourselves permission to maybe not be perfect, because I think that would vastly contribute to our productivity. I agree with you so much. And I think that what you said just now is just so incredibly heartening. I want to go home and I want to write now because of this. So, you know, go home and write something, even if it sucks, and then put it away for two days and then come back in two days and look at it again. That's the other thing about editing is give yourself distance from the work. You cannot write something, edit it right away, and then say it's done. Write it, put it away, come back to it later. I just read a fantastic book. It's called The Art of Slow Writing. I actually recommended it to you. Yeah. Uh, the Art of Slow Writing. I can't remember the woman's name. The best book I've ever read on writing. Phenomenal book. And it's about this concept. It's a series of essays, a series of short essays. It's maybe three or four pages per essay. There's probably 30 or 40 of them from this, this woman. She's a writer and she's a writing professor. And she talks about the idea that some of the best writing is done very, very slowly over time. And she recounts some of novelists that took 10 or 15 years to write novels. And they started writing a novel, and then they put it away, and they went back to it five years later. And maybe that's a little extreme, but writing doesn't come together in a hurry. You can't force creativity, and sometimes it just takes time. And there are sections of my book that I think are very, very good that came together over a long, long period. I contributed to these chapters and these sections of this book over the 20-month period that I wrote it. And there was no way that section of writing would be good on the first shot. 
because either something happened that I added or I thought of something new or I put two concepts together or, again, I got the 50,000-foot view. When I got 10 chapters away, I realized, you know what, I'm talking about something here that I really need to elaborate on a little bit better earlier. And so I kind of went back and beefed that section up to kind of address this later section. And so good writing comes together slowly and don't expect it to come quickly and don't try to force it and give yourself a break. I love that idea. I want to focus on that image just for a second of this piece that you're writing, whether it's, I think, fiction or nonfiction. I think this applies to both. I always kind of thought of it as putting together a puzzle on a table, like, oh, this word fits here and this fits here and this creates a bigger picture. But really what you're talking about is creating this three-dimensional pyramid almost, this three-dimensional figure that's layers upon layers, that's building blocks upon building blocks. And that rather than just being like streamed out in one linear line, comes together into sort of a, a larger three-dimensional object. Is that weird? No, it's not weird at all. In fact, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take us back to the 1700s. Immanuel Kant was talking about schema theory, mental schema theory, right? And a schema is kind of mental construct that we have about some subject that we embellish over time. I've always thought a schema is like a seamstress mannequin. That like when a seamstress gets a new fabric swatch, I want to say she takes it over, but that's very, very gender specific. He takes it over and he kind of holds it up to his mannequin and kind of figures out what he should do. And this mannequin is kind of a structure that he uses to work out all these different ideas. And that's really what schema theory is. We have these mental schemas in here that we're adding to and we're refining over time. I read a fantastic book that was written in the 80s. It was called Processing the News. And it was an experiment by a professor at the um, University of Chicago, I think. And she took 12 people and she followed them for a year and controlled the news that they consumed. Now, back in 85, this was a whole lot easier to do because you basically yeah. had the newspaper and the nightly news. Um, and she controlled the news that they consumed. And she cataloged every single article and every single segment she, they saw in the news. And then she interviewed them once a week about um, their ideas. And over time, in reading this book, you saw their schemas kind of get refined over time. Like they would have a schema theory about you know, all politicians are corrupt. And then they would read an article and she would ask, okay, well, you've talked about this in the past. How does this relate to this? And you kind of get the sense that, that a schema is really a puzzle that people mm-hmm. are putting together. And that's what you're doing when you're writing. When you do a puzzle, I don't know anybody that puts a puzzle together uh, linearly, mm-hmm. like in one shot. They start and they, they only put it together. And what you do is I've got two pieces here and they fit together. I'm going to set them aside. Now i got some pieces that fit together over here, and I'm kind of building a structure over here, and I'm kind of building a structure over here. And then there's that kind of grand moment when you get to put structures together. You're like, oh, I found the keystone that goes between <laughs> these, and oh, my goodness, they come together. Yes. And that's what you're doing when you're writing. Because what you're doing is, you, is you're kind of building this thing, and you're slowly putting together the ideas, and you're building this puzzle. It doesn't come together in a straight line. It doesn't. A friend of mine just gave the sermon at his church, and he was very much stuck in kind of how to put the sermon together. And he said, so what I did was I started coming up with ideas and I just kind of wrote little groups on little islands of ideas. And I didn't try to write the whole thing. And then I looked at all these ideas and thought, well, what do I have and how do they fit together? And that's how I kind of put a sermon together. And I think that's a great idea. I'm toying with ideas for two other books right now. And what I'm doing is just taking notes. I'm just seeing where they go. And in two or three months, I'll look at my notes and I'll see kind of what schemas, what structures do I have? How do they fit together? And what can I kind of put together like this? So... You can't force it, and it doesn't come together in a single line. So when you sit down to do something, maybe don't start at the beginning. Maybe start in the middle. Maybe start with a thing. Because once you do some part in the middle that you're really strong at and you understand, maybe you get a 50,000-foot view of that, and you'll realize where you need to go. 
I do a lot of public speaking, and what I've what people ask me for advice about public speaking, and one of the things that I've always made sure people understand is that when you are putting together a talk for a conference, be prepared for the fact that your subject may change. As you start putting together like a PowerPoint deck or something, you're working through it and you're rehearsing it, you're going to have that moment in the middle and you're like, you know, I'm not at all talking about X. I'm really talking about Y. Holy cow. And be ready for that moment. And that moment is wonderful and it's fantastic. And don't be terrified of that. Maybe be terrified of that if you have a very specific topic you're supposed to be talking about. <laughs> but, you know, that moment is a real gift because what you have done is you've just put two puzzle structures together and realized you come up with something completely different. And your puzzle is not a dog. It's actually a tree or something. And now what you're doing is you're going off in a whole different direction. And so be prepared for the fact that your own ideas will change kind of over time as you put this thing together. So. Kind of talking a little bit about these schemas and nonfiction Oh, look, I'm supposed to do Sarah's podcast. Oh, hey, it's time. <laughs> I, just got a, I just got a reminder. We were supposed to do this an hour later, and so I just got a reminder on my phone that it's time to do Sarah's podcast. Well, hey, let's, well, let's start. Okay. Oh, wouldn't that be awful if I hadn't been recording this whole time? That would be awful. Oh, my gosh, I'd be so mad. Because I've been in rare form, and I don't know if I can I, do this, this again. This has been great. Your voice has been so resonant. I know. I can't be creative again. <laughs> I, I forced this. I can't do it again. <laughs> There's two things that you'd mentioned. So I have to tell you, um, wonderful listeners, Dean is the most prepared person that I've ever talked to in my entire life. Well, at least my, the life of this podcast. He put together these notes and he shared them with me with all these ideas that he had. And I love it. So now this is another example of yeah. when, when I agreed, I, I think we talked like a month ago about me coming to do the podcast. I just started taking random notes I love about kind of the process. And I have these notes. And you know what we should do when you do this podcast? You should publish the Evernote link to these Will that be notes. okay? I would be okay with it. If you're okay with that, I'll do it. So these are my raw random notes, and Sarah will give you... I'm just trying to see, is there anything in here offensive? I hope not. <laughs> anyway. just one line of, like, swear words. Just okay, so Sarah will give you the notes to the, my Evernote link, and it's entitled Things for Sarah's Podcast, and it's just random notes that I took. And, um, yeah, so this is what I did, and there's no rhyme or reason. You see, I probably repeat myself several times in here, but... There's there's two that are that are repeated, but, like, I also see, like, themes. Like, there's a chunk here where you talk about editing, and there's a chunk down here where we talk about see, nonfiction things. I'm impressed you've marked it up. You well, actually thanks. printed out and marked it up. But now here's an interesting thing, and I'm going to show this, and um, you can't see it, obviously. I'm going to show Sarah. This is how I, I keep the notes and put the puzzle pieces together. Oh, boy. On my phone, I have Evernote, and you can actually link directly to notes in oh. Evernote. And I have what I call parking lots. And so this is the WCM parking lot, which is web content management. That's the book I just wrote. And this is my WCM parking lot. And like I would, whenever I would have a thought, I would click there and I would immediately go in and just jot down the thought. And so this is how I did it. And this relates to this idea of collection systems. If you've ever read um, David Allen, Getting Things Done. Mm -mm. Okay, it's a great productivity book by a guy named David Allen uh, called Getting Things Done. It's very, very famous. And he talks about effective collection systems. And I think that one of the problems that writers have is we don't have an effective collection system. Yes. Whenever you have an idea that kind of drifts through your head, you have to get that idea out of your head. I just read a book called The Organized Mind, and he said we have to externalize memory. That's the one thing I took away from the book, externalize memory. Our memories are terrible. Oh, my gosh. We get, like, vague things. I'm 44 years old, right? My memory's going. So, like, I get vague things that flow through my head. Externalize that. You have to get that down. And I tried to be super disciplined. Whenever anything drifted through my head that I thought should go in the book, I immediately dropped what I was doing, no matter what I was doing. I dropped what I was doing, and I, I clicked on this note, and I wrote it in my parking lot, which was just an Evernote. And um, this would get super long, and then I would sit down, and I would take two hours and start fitting these into the book and I would delete them and so then it would get shorter and then it would get longer 
And then there were some which just like never left the parking lot. And I would start looking at those and thinking, I'd have to make decisions. Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, this one's been in the parking lot for a really long time and I haven't put it in the book. And why is that? And you would have to look at that and say, well, that's not really a good point. You were, you were reaching with oh, that point. Oh, gotcha. You know, that isn't a really good point. Or that is a good point, but it's out of scope for the book. Or that is a good point, but it's going to be really tough to explain and it doesn't fit. And <laughs> there were a lot of things that were really good points, but they would just open up a can of worms I couldn't shut. I mean, there were, there were things like like drifting into e-commerce. Like, mm. you know, I could write a whole book about that. So yes. like I just said, you know what? I'm going to let that sleeping dog lie. And so um, I, I would make an effort to whenever something came up, I would put it in a parking lot. And I think that that is part. I, I wrote this in the acknowledgments of the book. In the acknowledgement, my first acknowledgement was to the entire industry. And the reason why I think the entire industry is because what I learned from writing this is that as a writer, unless you're doing a wholly unique work of fiction, all you are as a writer is really a curator. Mm. The fact is I didn't put anything in this book that was phenomenally original. You know, lots of other people have had these ideas. What I did is I collected them. I curated them. I organized them. I filtered. I explained them. I wrapped metaphors around them. And I think as writers, especially if you're going to be a nonfiction writer, one of the problems that you might have, because you might think, well, I don't know what to write about or I wouldn't have enough information to write about. You may not just have a great collection system. You may have all sorts of things that drift through your head that would together form a phenomenal piece of writing that you just let them drift through your head and you don't stop them on the way through. If you develop really, really great collection systems and you start collecting this information, you may realize that you know a lot more than you think you do. So I think that one of the things that we have a problem with as human beings and as writers especially is just really deficient collection systems. And if you haven't um, ever heard of David Allen, I recommend his book, Getting Things Done. It's a short read. And he stresses having high-quality collection systems. You should at any given time be able to get a thought out of your head into a permanent, persistent record where you can find it again later. And you would be amazed until you start doing that and have a discipline around that, you'll be amazed at how little you had before. And you'll be amazed. You'll be like, how did I remember all this stuff before? And the answer was you didn't. That's the answer. <laughs> you didn't remember this before. And you're remembering this now. And now you look back and you think, holy cow, how come I lost all this stuff before? It's because you didn't have a collection system. So, yeah. How yeah. much have I lost? Like, right. it's a little, little You know, you, you could have done something amazing and it drifted out of your head before yeah. you could write it down. And I know we've all had that moment where you wake up at 3 a.m. or, you know, Unless you wake up at 3 a.m. normally if you're an early riser like Dean. But if you're like me and you usually sleep till 6.30, you wake up at 3, you have this amazing idea, and you say, oh, I'm, I'm so snuggly warm. I don't want to get out of bed. I'll definitely remember this in the morning. No, it's too good. Of, you no, you never remember that. So. I would keep this next to the bed, and, and I would wake up a couple times in the middle of the night and add things in the middle of the night to it. Do you advocate uh, digital? Like, so Dean has a digital version here on his phone. He has Evernote. I have a little moleskin journal that I keep my notes in and my little ideas. Do you advocate, like, digital versus print or either or? I advocate whatever works. The only reason I do digital is I know I'll have my phone with me. Mm. If you can carry a physical notebook around and knock yourself out, I, I can't, but I know I'll have my phone. So that's the only reason digital works for me. So I just did a podcast episode about imposter syndrome. Oh, yeah. Is that something that you struggled with? And, and do you want to tell us a little bit about maybe wrestling with that? Yeah. So imposter syndrome, for those who aren't familiar with it, is the idea of people who genuinely discount their accomplishments. And a lot of people do it as kind of humble bragging. You know, you talk about the stuff they do and like, oh, it's no big deal. But this is when you genuinely internally feel like you are an imposter. People are telling you that you're super smart and that you've done a lot of things and you kind of discount everything they say. And I think that this happens a lot. This happens a lot to people and it certainly happens to writers. And what I would always tell myself when I would get like really, really kind of bummed out and I think, should I be writing this? Am I really? Somebody in the world 
has to write the book that you want to write. And it just might be you. And the fact is, if you want to write a book that you don't think that somebody's written, the fact that nobody else has written it yet is a good clue that maybe you were the one that was supposed to write it. And so I, I, imposter syndrome actually happens. I've struggled with it really my entire life. And, and I think it happens to writers more than anything because I think culturally this is going to change. But when you're a writer and you want to write a book, the idea of being a published author has been elevated. It's mm-hmm. been elevated so much. I mean, a book is a beautiful thing and it's finished. And there are people who have written books and there are people who have not written books. And right now you may be one of the people who have not written book and you kind of want to cross that huge chasm. And so uh-huh. it's like this big thing. Interestingly, I think technology may be changing this because the idea of becoming a published author is dramatically changing, right? Mm -hmm. You have to be published in paper. The barrier to entry, the kind of threshold of getting published has really gone down with the fact that publishers can take a risk on books that they might not otherwise do. So I think that may be changing. But don't elevate it more than it really needs to be elevated. And the fact is if nobody has written the book that you would like to write, which I hope is a reason why you want to write it. There's a reason nobody's written that book. And the reason why nobody's written that book is maybe that you were the one that was meant to write it. I love this. I feel like you should be a coach. I don't know. This is just, <laughs> I'm just like sitting here. You can't see me, but I'm, I'm just like nodding along with everything that it's, he says. It's just. This it's, is... it's almost like I should write a book. What? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I have some interesting mechanical things I can talk about. Do you want to talk about interesting mechanical things? I do. So so here's what's funny is when you go to write a book, you kind of, you know, like you think of these kind of big grandiose terms of explaining this stuff and everything. You have to set like mechanical ground rules in advance, which I really, really struggled with. Here's an example. This is like super in the weeds. Are you going to use contractions or not? Ooh. You have to kind of decide this. Are you going to use contractions or not? Because when you get 123,408 words down the road, you don't want to have to go back through and change everything to contractions. And there's the other thing is your voice. When I was writing the book, I had to decide, am I with the reader or not with the reader? So if I'm explaining how to fix a problem, do I say, to fix this problem, you can do X? Or do I say, to fix this problem, we can do X? That changes the tone, and I had to decide which way you were going to go. And I actually went to O'Reilly and said, what standard? And they said, use you, which I didn't love. I kind of wanted to be in it with them. Be inclusive, yeah. I think if you were running like a specific tutorial with steps, maybe we would be more appropriate. But that was kind of a ground rule that we had to set. And it goes to a larger sense of finding your voice as a writer. And you can really only find your voice as a writer by writing. That's the only way to kind of figure out how you sound most naturally. Because if you write and write and write and write and write, eventually you kind of fall into patterns and you begin to find your voice. And what's really interesting is that when you get 123,408 words down the road and you go back to something you wrote 123,000 words ago, you're like, who the hell wrote this? It doesn't even make any sense. <laughs> who wrote this? And the reason why that is you hadn't found your voice back then. And so then you're kind of up to you. You're like, oh, I wouldn't write this. This is terrible. And and it's just your voice has evolved and you've kind of fallen into a natural voice. And what I have found is the process of writing this book, the writing I do outside of this book has gotten better. The writing I do outside of this book, I'm writing much like I wrote this book because I really kind of found and solidified my voice over 20 months of kind of concentrated writing. And so... Mm. You get editing fatigue. You get both what I call acute and chronic editing fatigue. You get acute. Tell me about this. Yeah. So you get edited. So you sit down and you print the thing out and you start editing with a pen. Man, you can do that for about an hour and then you got to take a break. You you have like acute editing fatigue. You like close your eyes and you see the words and, and you just have to take a break. And you could edit for maybe one, two hours. And then you have to go away and maybe come back to it later in the day. But you also get chronic editing fatigue. 
after four run through this book, oh. I wrote Allie, and I was just like, man, I don't think I can get through a fifth. I just can't. The idea of sitting down and going through it again was just was just a lot. And there's a point where you just kind of naturally need to be done. Mm-hmm. What's really tricky is that as you edit, I tended to add things. I would, like, add significant sections of the book. I realized, well, I haven't talked about this thing, so I'd write, like, 2,000 words on this thing and shove it in the book. The problem is when you write text, and this goes back to what I said before about your first draft, um, you know, your first draft of anything is crappy. It's supposed to be crappy. Give yourself permission for it to be crappy. But the problem is now you have a passage of crappy text mm-hmm. in amongst a passage of text that's been refined five times. Now mm-hmm. it sticks out like a sore thumb. Mm-hmm. And so the next time you go through the edit, you're like, oh, this is great. I'm not making any red at all. And then it's like this session is just like a murder. There's blood <laughs> all over the page. The reason why is because you just wrote that. You mm-hmm. haven't edited that thing like four or five times. And so you kind of have to make passes and passes and passes over things. And so what I would start to do at the end is when I added a passage, the next day I would go in and just do an edit of that one section. And when you add a section like that, what's tricky is making it fit. Because mm-hmm. like, again, if you add this, it'll like stick out like a sore thumb. You have this beautiful refined editing. And then it's like, it seems like the text just goes off into left field. And you're talking about something completely different. And kind of the tone changes and the scope of what you're saying changes. You have to make sure like your segues are in place and your transitions are in place. And then did you invalidate headings? I would do this all the time. Oh, one, of, one of the biggest problems that I think a lot of writers have, especially when you're writing nonfiction, um, only when you're writing nonfiction really, is that your text does not live up to your title or your headings. And this is one of the, I notice this now when I read a book, that a book, the title of the book makes an implicit promise about what's in the book. And the chapter titles make an implicit promise about what's in the chapter. And the heading titles, they make all these promises. And then the text in those things will break those promises. Mm -hmm. Mentally, the reader is thinking, oh, there's a heading. I'm going to learn about X. If you start talking about Y, that reader is going to be really, really confused. Because what you wrote about Y may stand on its own just fine. But you made a promise with your heading. And you said we were going to talk about X. And now you told it. It's like if you sat your child down and you said, we're going to talk about elephants. And then you started to talk about cars. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. It would be like, Dad, what does this have to do with elephants again? Now, if you just started talking about cars, you'd be like, oh, this is about cars. But you told him you were going to talk about elephants. <laughs> so what you would have to do is when you would put, you have to make sure you didn't invalidate headings. When you added this, do your headings still make sense? And so th- these are all like mechanical editing things that I would run into again and again and again. As I would, I would invalidate headings. I would move things around and realized I would have a section that says something about topic X. And we'll talk about this later in the book. And then I would move that section ahead of the thing I said we're going to talk about later. And so now we talked about this earlier in the book. And so you have to make sure that all fits together. And these are the only things you can get from a 5,000-foot view. So you really do have to have full-length edits because you find things and you get down and you're like, oh, holy cow, I moved this and it doesn't make sense anymore. Moving content around is dangerous, especially late in the editing process because the book becomes so integrated. You have so many callbacks where you're like, you know, refer to figure X. And I'm talk- we talked about this earlier, and we'll talk about this later. And the book gets all these kind of roots into itself. And if mm-hmm. you move something, you will jack everything up. It's like, I remember reading the story of how Windows 95 was released. And like the three weeks before the release of Windows 95, Bill Gates himself had to sign off on any bug fix because they were so deep into that any bug fix could literally screw up eight other things. There's a joke in software development. It's a play on the beers on the wall thing. Mm-hmm. Or something. It's 99 bugs on the wall. Take one down, patch it, pass it around. 
now there's 127 bugs on the law, right? And so this yeah. is like software development. You screw one thing and you you mess up everything else. And that's where you get very late in the book. You have to be very careful what you change because the book has become so integrated, it becomes kind of a mess. So these are all just like mechanical things. And you know what? That applies to fiction too. I mean, I, I know that I've moved sections around and the character's wearing something in this scene and then, oh, wait, she's wearing something else here because I moved this from here. And so I think it applies to a number of different things. When you become a super famous author and you make billions of dollars, these are the things that your fans will like obsess about. Oh my gosh. They'll obsess about the mistake back in that book. I used to be a huge James Bond fan in college and we used to obsess about the mistakes in the movie. So slip some of those in to give your fans something to talk about later. <laughs> it's like when you're watching a movie and you see a boom mic and you're like, yeah. Yes, right. Um, What's really hard, too, is as you start adding to the book later on, you've got to try to avoid like a patchworky feel to the book. Tell me more about this, because I was going to ask about your editing for voice consistency and stuff, too. Right. It's like, how do you like changes in scope? Are you talking about a very, very big topic and then suddenly out of nowhere, you're super deep in the weeds and then you're talking about a big topic again? And so you want to avoid like the book just being this kind of patchwork of anecdotes. I call this the Malcolm Gladwell syndrome. I'm going to dump on Malcolm Gladwell okay. for a second. Malcolm Gladwell, I'm pretty sure, he has a great collection system. Because what Malcolm Gladwell spends his entire doing is collecting anecdotes. He collects funny little stories. And you can almost see him just like dying to tell somebody these funny stories. And so he looks at these stories and he's like, what's the barest thread I can use to give me an excuse to put these in the same book? And then he writes a book like Outliers. And if you read Outliers or The Tipping Point, in the middle of the tipping point, he goes off on like a 40-page segue about Sesame Street that has nothing to do with the topic. And so when you get to the end of a Gladwell book, I always put it down. I loved it, and I enjoyed it, and it was so much fun, and I really enjoyed reading it. I didn't really learn anything about what he said he was going to teach me. It was basically a collection of antidotes held together like the bear string. And that's what I was trying to avoid with the book. I was always trying to kind of build on a point and put a point together and kind of construct a thought process. And the danger was once you start throwing all these anecdotes in that you're going to have this big patchworky mess. Now, this was exacerbated by O'Reilly's format because I'm writing what's called an animal book, which is O'Reilly's, um, their format of books. And they give you formatting tools. Like they have a style, you have a sidebar, mm. and then you have a um, you have these little callouts, and you can have a tip or a warning or a note, and they have like little animals that go with them. The, the note is a bird, and the warning is a scorpion, and the tip is a monkey, and then you have footnotes. <laughs> I, I laugh because I like got footnote crazy. I was like the Johnny Appleseed of footnotes, <laughs> and then you have like parentheticals. And so here's one of the problems: is I'm a very very I go off on tangents, I, as you can tell with this podcast. Oh, I can go off on a tad. I, I can go off on a tangent, like no, but there's like nothing I can't tell some random story about. Well, when you're writing, I would be writing, and I'd be like, oh, I really want to talk about this thing, but then I had to decide. I had this huge existential crisis: of what kind of an aside is this? Is this a parenthetical? Is this a footnote? Is this a tip, a warning, or a note? Or is this a full-blown sidebar? Or is this a heading in the main narrative? Oh, and I can tell you, there are there are bits in that book that were all of them before I finally settled on one. And I probably went back through the whole cycle again and kept figuring out, is this, no, it's not a footnote. Like I would go footnote crazy. I think because I was just entertained by the idea of footnotes. I thought, oh, I'm an author who writes footnotes. I wanted to be that guy, right? I yeah. wanted to be that guy that wrote a lot of footnotes. So um, everything was a footnote. And then I would go through the book and I was like, I would have a stretch of like eight pages and every page had a footnote. And I was like, okay, that's too much. So I started pulling these footnotes out and I started making them notes. And then some of them got really long as notes. I'm like, well, maybe that should be a sidebar. Well, maybe that should be in the heading. And it just, it was one of the hardest problems with this was trying to figure out what they were going to be. And that was just endemic to the fact that there were styling tools that I was expected to use. 
Uh, but yeah, figuring out what an aside was going to be and how to tell a story. And here's the other thing that nobody else will admit. Oh, boy. And, and oh I boy. will admit. Okay. I got all Gladwell. There were some stories I just really wanted to tell. There's a sidebar in the book, and hopefully no one in this podcast will read the book, because when you get the sidebar, <laughs> you'll be like, oh, this is the one he was talking about. The sidebar. I, every year, I try to read one of Shakespeare's plays, and it was really late last year. I read The Merchant of Venice in 2014. In 2015, the play was Much Ado About Nothing, and I didn't actually get it done until like January 2nd of this year, just about two weeks ago. And when I do it, reading Shakespeare is really hard. See, here's one of these tangents I'm going off on. No, I love this. So Keep... this, this would be a sidebar or maybe Keep a footnote. Talking? I don't yeah. know. But um, <laughs> so I, I read the play, which is just ridiculously hard. I mean, reading Shakespeare with kind of raw on paper is really hard. But so then I went on YouTube and I watched multiple different performances of it. And then I watched the movie. There was a 1993 movie. And there was a 2011 movie, too. Josh Wielden did mm -hmm. a movie, which I haven't seen yet. And so I take this big holistic approach to it. And then suddenly it dawned on me that, like, holy cow, this is like content management, right? The play was the content. And all these different things were like the presentation. And I was like, I have got to tell this story. And so this was one of the less contrived ones. Because legit, if you read my, my Shakespeare sidebar, it, it has a good point to say. But there are some anecdotes in there that were stretched just because I wanted to tell the story. I wanted to go all Malcolm Gladwell, and I thought that the story was really smart and sounded really cool. And I liked the vision of myself as an author that mm -hmm. like told amazing stories. And, and you almost have to give yourself permission to do that in some senses, because a book is by nature narcissistic. Tell me more about right? this. So there's well, a certain kinda. narcissism to it. I mean, let's admit it. I'm very happy I wrote this book. If this hasn't come across in the last hour that I'm talking here, I'm very <laughs> impressed with myself. I wrote this book. There's a level of narcissism here, and I don't care what you wrote. You will be proud of this thing, and you should be proud of this thing. This is a wonderful thing. And so, um, yeah, I would have these stories that I just like really wanted to tell, and I will freely admit that here and regret it terribly in the morning or no. Monday whenever this thing comes out. But no. you will. You want to tell a story, and so you'll like you'll stretch and come up with some kind of flimsy way to shoehorn it into the book. And I hope I didn't do that too much. And the Shakespeare one was maybe a bad example because there actually is a really good point behind that one. But um, you can go too far, right? A narcissistic writer goes a little bit too far. There's a balance there, certainly. But this is your book, and this is your work, and you have every right to be proud of it. Yeah. Well, and that seems like it almost maybe is... I don't know, at odds with the imposter syndrome that we talked about earlier. Was there a point when you went from sort of not believing that you had, you know, the expertise that it took to write this book to being like, hey, I did this? Was it just a simple matter of beginning and ending for you? Well, so I always like was prepared for people to tell me it sucked. Um, the way we did it with uh, O'Reilly's, they have technical reviewers. And so I got to pick three technical reviewers and I picked three people I have huge amounts of respect for to kind of review this book. And, and I picked two people that were developers like me. And then I picked one content strategist. I, I did. I picked someone who wasn't a developer and her feedback was phenomenal. She would like send me, her name was Lindsay Struthers. Um, I've known her for years. She's content strategist in Minneapolis. And she would like put notes on there and I'd be like, read this note. And I'd be like, what? And then I'd go back and I'd read the text and I'd be like, what was I talking about? This doesn't make any sense at all. And she would just have this great insight from another direction. So I was, I was always terrified one of them was going to come back and say that it sucked, but none of them ever did. I think I'm at the end of my notes. Are you at the end of your notes? I might. Well, I have a few more questions oh, for you. Can I talk about nesting? That's what I was going to ask you about. Look <laughs> okay. at this. It's on the bottom of my list, too. Nesting. Right. You don't have any kids, do you? Uh, no. Okay. I, well, I have cats. Oh, right, right. Okay, so my wife and I, we have um, three kids. 
And um, when a woman is pregnant, there is a concept they call nesting, where very, very close to her due date, she starts to become highly productive. I may be totally misrepresenting my understanding of nesting. <laughs> it's a phenomenon where she gets like super productive and she starts like setting up the house and making sure it is set because there's this kind of inbuilt evolutionary biological reaction where she just like, this has to be ready for the baby. As you get closer and closer to being done, if you have a hard deadline, you will start nesting like crazy. And that's what I did. Like this last weekend, I basically nested all weekend. I was tearing through that thing. I was changing everything. I had to get this thing in. And you, I had such clarity of thought. Things that were complicated for me previously suddenly weren't complicated because I was up against like the end. I was, I was nesting. My gestation period was over. I was given birth to this thing. <laughs> And so, yeah, you had this kind of nesting instincts where you suddenly have these panic moments. You're like, oh, my goodness, I didn't talk about this thing. I need to talk about this thing. And I forgot to talk about this thing. And so I added two things to the book at about 4 o'clock this morning. Oh, my gosh. I cannot believe I went 20 months without putting these two things in there. I mean, they are two highly relevant anecdotes, metaphors, analogies, different ways of explaining things. When you write nonfiction, you realize you're just finding creative ways to explain things. And there, there are ways to explain subjects that I cannot believe I got 20 months without writing this thing down. And it's this kind of nesting instinct that comes out at the end. But then it was super hard at noon. They essentially kicked me out. I mean, they didn't revoke my permissions, but they said, stop checking things in. You are done. <laughs> And it was, I sat there and it was hard, man. Baby had flown. Yeah. My baby was out of the nest. It was hard because suddenly my son's 21 years old. And after he, when he got like 16, 17 years old, you would get this parental panic where you're like, he's almost gone. Have we done, have we gone fishing enough times? Have yeah. we done all the things that we need to do? And so you get this kind of panic before he leaves the nest and to make sure, he, you know, I'm sure my son got sick of like doing all this stuff because he's like, <laughs> seriously, I'll still be around. I'm not moving away forever. Yeah. Um, but you get this kind of nesting parental panic where you think, oh my goodness, have I talked about this thing? Do I need to get this in there? And I, I've gone through that in like the last week. So yeah, that was the nesting instinct. <laughs> Looking at that clarity, I feel like your nesting is is my equivalent of just deadline panic. But I, I love the idea of that nesting. Well, no, I think <laughs> the deadline panics a little bit differently when you're doing something for someone else, mm. right? We both work in professional services, but I think deadline panics a little bit differently when you work in professional services because it's really for someone else. And I'm not saying that we skimp on client work or anything like this, but no. when this is very much an emotional labor of love, it, it takes on a very, very different tone. So I want to hear more about this. I want to hear more about, did you write this book for yourself, essentially? I wrote the book that I always wanted to read. That's what I did. And and I'm very happy. That was my idea was I'm going to write the book that I always wanted to read. Actually, I wrote it because a guy named Bob Boyko wrote a book called The Content Management Bible. And the last version he published was 2003, about 12 years ago. I read it in 2006. So 1,122 pages. Uh, phenomenal book. And I remember thinking that someday I'd like to write a book like this. And it's been 12 years. And I actually had I had breakfast with Bob like two years ago. And he said, I'm not writing another edition. I'm totally done with this. <laughs> and so kind of, I wanted to write kind of the successor to the content management Bible. And I don't know if I did. And I'm not certainly not laying claim to that throne at all. But I remember reading that book and just being so into it. And I, I remember thinking, I want to write a book that like someone who's passionate about the same things I am would just love to read. I would like to write the book that I wanted to read. I just read something today. The kid who plays on Teen Wolf I've never seen the show, but mm. apparently the main star just came out as gay on Instagram. And, and he put a picture of something that he saw a year ago. He saw a sign like in a store and the sign said, be the person you needed when you were younger. Mm. That was the sign he saw. And he said, that's, 
he came to grips with his sexuality and he thought the person I needed when I was younger was somebody who would tell me that it was okay. And so he came out today on Instagram and he had a picture of that sign. And so like that was kind of, I read that and I kind of thought, you know, write the book you've always wanted to read. And so if I give one piece of advice, right, to sum everything up is write the book you always wanted to read. You know, you are writing this book yourself. Write the book for yourself. Write the book that you always wanted to read. And hopefully that will make you passionate enough about it and that'll come out. I want to I want to end with that. I think we found a great ending point. I think we have too. Dean, thank you so much for your eloquent voice, for your resonant voice, for the voice. for the wisdom that you <laughs> shared with us today. This has just been a real treat. I've enjoyed it. Thanks for having me and I will I will let you post this link to my notes. And so if you're listening to this podcast, you will get to see my raw notes for Sarah's podcast. This is very so, exciting. That'd so, be great. Cool. Dean, thank you. Thanks for having me. This has been episode eight of Coffee Break, which is a sister podcast of the Right Now podcast. If if you didn't know that by now, I guess. <laughs> this is what you've been listening to for the last 45 minutes or an hour. Anyway, special thanks today to Dean Barker for stopping by and uh, recording this episode with me. Special thanks also go out to my Patreon supporters, including official cool cat Sean Locke, official rad dude Andrew Coons, and official bookworm Rebecca Werner. You guys are amazing. Thank you so much for helping me out. If you're interested in uh, helping to support the Right Now podcast, you can do so by navigating to my website, sarahwerner.com. That's S-A-R-A-H-W-E-R-N-E-R.com. And in the main nav there, you'll see options for both a tip jar if you want to throw a buck or two my way. And also there is now the official Right Now Podcast store where you can buy merch. <laughs> merch is short for merchandise and there's a lot of cool stuff out there. This this is just sort of the soft launch for it. I haven't really like showed it to anybody yet. And so there's just a couple of products out there. But if you want to support the podcast and get some sweet merch, this is a great way to do that. Finally, thank you so much for listening today. I love recording this podcast and I love doing it for you. And I hope that it helps you to get everything you need to pursue your passion and write every day. I'm Sarah Werner, and this is the Right Now Podcast.